Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are looking at indicators, the big macroeconomic indicators that dominate the news headlines and can dominate market performance. Plenty to digest in here. And look, this is a very high level conversation. So don't get caught up on the big picture stuff here. Understand exactly how it can impact on your decision making. Take plenty of notes, but as always, make sure you take plenty of action. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurential. Good to be here, Mr. B. Thanks for having me. Really excited to get your take on today's episode because we're going to be talking about arguably probably your favorite topic, and that's the economy. Importantly, every economic indicator that investors should be looking at with respect to the stock market. Hugely important, Mitch, and, and an area which, you know, irrespective of just how great our podcasts are, very, very difficult to be able to sort of compress that information down into a conversation like this. And as you say, I, I love economics. It's been something that's lived with me from my days at school and uni. I also love current affairs and news. And when you splice those three things together, I suppose, you know, it's been a, a, a life interest for me. So really sifting through that and saying, okay, what are the, what are the key four or five things that people need to know in order to try and make a cracker from this market based on those, it becomes a challenge, but we'll certainly do our best. Indeed. And if I can draw a parallel, one of our most recent episodes, we spoke about the tech sector and mm. any of our listeners out there, you haven't listened to it, absolute cracker, go back. Mm. We spoke about earnings and I guess that from a micro perspective, this is all about macro perspective, big picture stuff, right? That, that's right. And, and, and I think this is one of those things that can wrong foot so many investors. And I'm not saying this to put people off listening to this podcast because hopefully it does lift the opaqueness for people. Oftentimes, fundamentals, economic indicators are known as, as fundamentals. And going back to my economics days, you know, the, the assumptions around economics, assuming ceteris paribus, which is oh, a wonderful Latin phrase terrible. for assuming everything stays the same and we all know nothing stays the That's same. Right. But nonetheless, yeah, it, 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 it is very macro. These are the big, big drivers that, that people look out for to, to try and get a bead on the economy. What I would say is that with with anything when it comes to analysis, I think that, that you can run the trap of falling into becoming a devotee of one particular camp or another. And this is why here at Australia Investment Education, we've spliced together technicals and fundamentals and quants to help us spit out what we consider to be good quality opportunities because they all bring great value. So let's dive into it. What do you got for me from a from a from a fundamentals perspective in oh, economics? Big ticket one, I think economic growth, GDP mm. as a measure of output from a country perspective. How important is it? How does it affect stocks? But GDP, gross domestic product, is probably the biggest headline number when when you look at economic announcements. And and the thing with with all of this, and this is the beautiful thing, in fact we provide these for our clients, is that you can timetable it. All of these announcements are at a structured, notified day and time each month. So they should never wrong foot you where you go, oh gee, I didn't know that was coming up because they're they're very, very well telegraphed. And as a consequence, you can build them into your analysis quite well. So GDP, the big one, what it effectively looks at is the the engine room, the rev counter, if you will, for the economy. And if the economy is revving quite nicely, GDP growth is happening. Growth growth is really important. You have to have growth. If you don't, that's an obvious thing to say. You have a recession. Recession is not good for anything particularly, not good for stock prices, not good for individual wallet share and bank accounts. Uh, and it's not good for anyone's psychology either because you know, they're tough times. So you always want to have growth where it's moving along. The challenge is that sometimes you can have too much of a good thing. And so if you think about GDP as being the rev counter in an engine, if it's sitting at that sort of normal sort of rate, which I don't know what sort of car people drive, but you know, if you've got you know, 
somewhere between 1,800 and 2,500 revs is probably the normal place to drive your car if you're going on a journey. That sort of band of, of GDP where you've got, you know, three, three and a half percent economic growth is, is, is at the, the sort of top end of that that you really want. Because once you start to move into that territory of five, six, seven, eight percent GDP growth, it starts to come with some side effects that are, that are not so good. So when you see healthy GDP, all your cyclical stocks should be performing really well. Your banks should be doing very, very well. Your mining sector is likely to be going well. Consumer-related stocks would be going well because the economy is trucking along at a pretty good rate. And, and so, you know, a lot of things fall off the back of it. So I guess GDP is kind of that big snapshot headline figure to say we're either growing or we're not, right? Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong too, if we've got positive GDP, likely indicative of the fact that companies are probably growing their earnings as mm. well which is a good thing. You, you would expect to see earnings growth, which then flows through for dividends and such like on the back of it. So generally speaking, yes, it, it's a positive thing to see. In terms of looking at GDP, I think like any economic data point, it's a, an easy trap to fall into is to look at the number. And I think it's more important to look at the trend to see what it's been over the previous timeframes, whether that's monthly or quarterly in the, in, the, in the instance of some indicators. And you know, if you've got a nice trend forming where you're getting quarter on quarter growth, but not crazy too much growth, that bodes really well. When you've got like flatline GDP and then all of a sudden there's an outlier, that can be a little bit problematic because you've got to dive then a little bit deeper to see if there was a, a unique or a one-off factor that perhaps has influenced that. And, and trying to trade or invest off one-off factors is, is, is pretty hard. You want to be going with that big wide gateway of, of trend. So yeah, you want to see solid GDP not taking off and hitting the stars, just, just grinding it out. Indeed. It's a boring indicator, but Very. it's it's, a, it's a, an extremely important one. So think about that as your rev counter in the car. Gotcha. Now, one thing you mentioned is that GDP, if it gets too good, too much of a good thing, mm-hmm. is not necessarily a good thing. First term that comes to me would be inflation, mm-hmm. therefore. So let's talk about interest rates and inflation, because this is what's really dominated headlines gotcha. for the last two years. Well, if you think about if an economy is growing too quickly, there's more money flying back into the economy. So you have more money chasing a finite amount of resources, which effectively then gives you inflation. So to give you a more anecdotal example of that, if you have a large injection of cash from a government subsidy and COVID was a, a really good example of that during the pandemic, where you know there were various economic stimulants, you know, JobKeeper and, and various other things that were put forward by the government, poured a huge amount of money into the economy to keep the GDP figure going up. But then all of a sudden what you get is that inflation figure that comes in on the back of it. So if GDP is your rev counter, the temperature gauge on your engine, the engine oil is your inflation figure. And again, if GDP is growing too much, inflation starts to get out of control. So what you've now got are two things that you're really managing, and we'll talk, I'm sure, about a few more as well. Inflation, you need some. You don't need too much. And you know, there's typically talk of you know, up to about 3% is 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 probably okay from a from an economics perspective and and central banks around the world typically have a targeted band where they like to see inflation some inflation means the economy is chugging along and is growing okay no inflation is problematic because it means people aren't necessarily spending which then leads to a series of other dramas including a, a slower gdp down the line so you know you've got to keep a really really close eye on that when inflation gets out of control it becomes a very very damaging impact it's it's ultimately it's a tax it's a tax on cash because effectively your purchasing power is being eroded so maybe you might have paid four dollars fifty for a coffee two years ago now you're paying six so that's that money that you had saved up is effectively if if all you did with your money is drink coffee is is, is enjoyed a 50 percent reduction in your purchasing power 
uh, and it, and that kind of erosion of purchasing power stops people spending because they can't. It's, it's it, and then you start to have your economy pull up pretty sharpish. The other thing that it does it stops people holding cash. They need to spend it. So if we backpedal a little bit, you know, if inflation is very high, people are usually panicking. Interest rates usually move higher when inflation moves up, so people are more inclined to want to save. The idea of that theory is that by saving, it stops people spending, which brings inflation under control. You're pulling money out of the economy, you're backing off on the accelerator, you're trying to get the temperature down. The challenge with that is that you know, it, when price is running away and your cash is worth less, it kind of makes sense almost to spend more. In fact, it makes sense to borrow a lot more, which is such a, an opposite way of looking at this because you go, well, interest rates are going up, so I would want to borrow more. Well, if you owed a million dollars today and inflation is at 7 or 8%, that million dollars in 10 years' time is going to be worth a fraction of that in today's money because of the time value, yeah, the discount factor of inflation over time. Higher interest, it's a very complicated subject. Very right? complicated, uh, yeah. So with interest rates moving higher, people are less inclined to want to build up debt, but actually with high inflation, that's probably a good time to have debt, even though it costs more to service it. Gee whiz, that's a different way of looking at it. Mm. So you mentioned interest rates as the mechanism well, for- and, 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 and good time to borrow because real assets are moving up in value. If you buy a house and inflation is there, whatever you're paying on your interest rate for your loan, the asset price is also moving up. Plus when you pay the loan off, the, the amount you've got to pay off in the future is worth less today. It's a it's a very counterintuitive way of thinking. Indeed. So with the stock market, AB, interest mm. rates go higher. That then naturally raises the risk-free rate of return. Mm. And we typically use the bond market to determine yep. that. In the US, it's the two or the 10-year treasury bond yields. That should, in theory, increase dividend yields in the stock market too. Well, that's right. If, if the risk-free rate, and for simple terms, let's assume it's just cash at the bank. It's a little bit more than that, but let's just say it's cash at the bank. So if you're earning 5.5% on cash at the bank, to, to invest in a company that's paying a 5.5% dividend, you're getting the same return on your money. But inherently, one is significantly more risky being the company. So you really need to demand more compensation to hold that. So in an inflationary or higher interest rate environment, companies do need to increase their dividend payout to their investors to make investing in that stock actually attractive. The other side of the coin is that if you've got inflation, it's because the economy is actually running pretty hot. So companies should technically be doing quite well under those circumstances, and they should therefore be in a better position to to pay a bigger bigger dividend. Equally, if you look at, say, banks, for example, and we've gone through a period you know, here in Australia, in fact, everywhere in the Western world where, you know, a couple of years ago now, interest rates were effectively zero or ne- nearly zero. And, and it's very, very hard if you're a bank to have, okay, this is what we're paying our savers, which might be, you know, 0.1. And if you're a borrower, we're charging you, you know, two because interest rates are very, very low. That's a margin of about 2%. But when you've got a higher interest rate, what you pay your borrowers, it might be four, but what you're, or rather what you're paying your savers might be four, but what you're charging your borrowers might be seven and a half. So now your profit margin on the money is about three and a half percent. So when interest rates are moving higher, that's actually typically a very, very good time for banks to be able to make more profit. Indeed. The other side of the coin is there's also more risk in the economy. So they need to provision for things like bad debts and say a mortgage goes south and things like that. So again, these things are inextricably linked. You can't look at one of them in isolation, which makes trading decisions on the back of it fairly complex. Indeed. Moving forward now, and that was quite interesting, that conversation, let's switch gears to employment. So Mm -hmm. the unemployment figure in the US, we get it every month here in Australia, Mm -hmm. every quarter. What does high unemployment mean or low unemployment mean for stocks specifically? Look, 
if you've got high unemployment, typically the, the, if you join the dots between the statistic of higher than average unemployment to, to an investment decision, if you've got more people unemployed, you'd normally expect to see a slowdown in consumer spending because more people aren't working. So areas of consumer discretionary spending, not things like groceries, although it does get impacted, albeit to a lesser extent, you know, that's a consumer staple, but consumer discretionary, like buying a new plasma screen Retails, or, or, that or, kind of thing. or higher end, bigger ticket retail items typically would slow down on the back of that because you've got this rump of, of higher unemployment that's out there. It's also, I guess, indicative of a tougher business environment. So you're, you, you probably find your stock market is probably easing off a little bit too. So if you've gone through a period of time where you've had low interest rates, stock market's off to the races, GDP is really strong. Then as GDP starts to slow, maybe interest rates have had to move up to combat the inflation created by the stronger economy. And then you start to have layoffs and then unemployment starts to increase, which because people are spending less also so reduces inflation, also slows down GDP, and then you've got the start of another economic cycle. Oh, it's funny how it works, isn't it? Well, it's not even three-dimensional. It's it, it's bonkers the way all this sort of really does splice together. So I can understand why so many people scratch their head with it. So higher unemployment, usually typically slower consumer discretionary. Lower unemployment, now that's a different kettle of fish again because if you've lower unemployment, if you look at the balance of, yeah, it's a, probably not the right term for it, but the balance of power in the job market, if you've got very low unemployment, you've got to compete for people to want to work for you. So you typically have to increase your wages, which is an inflationary issue on the other side of the coin. And, and when people start to earn more, they typically spend more, which then kicks things along from a, an inflation and interest rate perspective. So lower unemployment is usually a sign of a pretty strong economy. But you can get to that point where you've got very, very low unemployment, and that can be problematic because you then end up with an inflationary. Is it, yeah, it's a good problem to have everyone having a job, but it can become inflationary. So you then need to balance up, okay, well, what are we going to do here to make sure inflation doesn't get out of hand? I guess that's been the dance for most economies, particularly Aussie and US, mm. is that inflation's been going higher, but unemployment just remains so low and everyone mm. keeps spending, right? The, the job market is is... It's it, these things are all slow-moving beasts. There's no oh, one one month everything's changed. It's a pattern of behaviour, and over time. And in fact, when we look specifically at jobs, one of the things that you have is it's called a seasonal adjustment because yeah, there are certain times of the year where things are, are a little bit tougher. So if you if you take yeah, the northern hemisphere winter, and we're talking about the US economy for a moment, if you go into winter, for example, in a, particularly in a lot of the northern states in, in the US. Construction has a lot of layoffs because job sites are frozen or they're under snow and there's no ability to to build or it's very difficult to build under those conditions. So you'll see quite an uptick in layoffs in the construction space. And then as spring comes along, those jobs then get absorbed. And so that seasonal adjustment of recognizing that, gee, you know, the construction industry is really in a bad way, is laying people off. Sometimes it's for a reason, which is seasonally driven. Equally, and on the other side of the coin, if you look at, say, agriculture, again, there's a very seasonal impact on employment within there, particularly during harvest time, which is typically the more labor-intensive time within the agricultural cycle. So there's another variation rather than just looking at employment is the seasonally adjusted aspect to it as well. So again, you could really tie yourself in knots on this sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. Last one I want to bring to your attention. It's an important one for market sentiment, and that's consumer confidence. Mm. So how people feel about the economy and how they feel about the future of the economy and inflation, that can often represent their sentiment towards being bullish or bearish on stocks, right? 
Mm, consumer confidence is is key. And again, if we take the US as an example, you know, over fifty percent of the US economy is driven by consumer related activity. So if you've got a very strong level of confidence amongst the consumer, and what do you mean by confidence is where someone is, I guess, more optimistic about the now and the future than they are about the past. And so they're more certain about spending money. You're happy to take on more debt, for example, because you feel good about what's coming along down the line. And that in itself then gives a real good kicker to where the economy is going, which almost becomes self-fueling. So if you've got really strong consumer confidence and the economy is being pulled along behind it, the economy continues to grow, which puts pressure on the job market, which pushes wages high, which means people spend more and their confidence is growing further. And, and then you end up with a you know, effectively economic boom conditions, at which point in comes from stage left the central bank to say, no, you mustn't have that much fun. Let's push up interest <laughs> rates and just dampen things down a little bit. And, and, and it is a fascinating area to watch. And these are, these are just the, the sort of really big indicators. I mean, there are so many subsets within there. If you look at housing starts, for example, which you know is such a, a critically important thing for the construction sector, for new builds, because often when people look at property, they'll look at you know, property prices. But that's the second-hand property market. It's not the construction market. That's new stuff. And so looking at housing starts as a subset is another thing that you can really get yourself caught up in. Baltic Freight, which is another terrific index, which I remember very, very early on in my, my, my investing career, one of my colleagues, a gentleman by the name of Rupert Carnegie, of, of that family name, a terrific guy, very, very smart economist, learned a lot working alongside him. Would And I remember saying to him once, if you have one economic indicator to follow, what would it be? And without missing a beat, he said Baltic Freight. So Baltic Freight effectively is the index that charts shipping costs and moving things around the world. And really, it's a proxy for everything because if there's no demand and a weaker consumer there's no demand for shipping stuff around. And he used to use that very, very effectively as a, as a, as, as a, a particularly sharp tool, very good scalpel for making some incredibly accurate calls, I might say too. He's a good guy, Rupert. I enjoyed his company. So, you know, there are so many ways that you can, you can skin all of this. The key thing is that you can be very wrong on this because an announcement may come out and your expectation is such that, oh, that GDP figure was, was quite high. So, you know, the share market should have gone up and in fact, it went down. Well, maybe that figure was higher than what the market wanted to see and therefore seeing the central bank are going to have to raise interest rates and therefore stocks went into a retreat even though the number was positive. So what you've got then is a scenario where you've done your analysis and you're expecting one thing and you got served the opposite. And that's what makes this whole business of using big macroeconomic indicators a very difficult thing to use from a from a trader's perspective. Because, um, and when I say trader, I think what we're talking about here is time frame of an investment. If you're looking at a two, three, five year view, a few days here or there, or a percentage here or there is not so relevant. It's about that big macro kind of swing. And I think using these kinds of indicators, if you're a shorter term trader, can present some opportunity and in some instances can give you an edge. But if you're not totally across it, actually can be quite detrimental to your investment decision making because you're looking at the signs, but they're the wrong signs for the kind of trading that you're doing. Very complex area, but AB, really good to get your insights here. Mm. I feel like we've learned a lot, so thank you very much. My pleasure, anytime. Bit of a dry one there, but it's important to understand what these things are because they are market movers. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating, and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.